Podcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. Number two, Miller and Condon. I guess I had a Sean Roberts moment. Oh, yeah? yeah. What happened over there? <laughs> I said intimidation is the most sincerest form of flat. It's imitation. Well, eh, potato, potato. Right. Tomato, tomato. That was just pointed out to me on Twitter. I did say it too, now that I think about it. Anyways. Uh, Does anybody really say potato or tomato? I've never heard it. No. Um, no, I don't get that one, Trent. Um, now, there are some similarities in some... Potato, potato, no. No, no. Tomato, tomato, likewise. Right. Intem- Im- imitation, intimidation, that's what you hear from Though some chair. people say Warsh and Washington. We're about to hear from one. Oh, the yes, governor, absolutely. She, she, uh, across. I want to find where that R is. And the T and across. My wife, it drives me nuts. Crick? Yes, she's a crick gal. Is that... A, it must be an Iowa thing. Well, I think it's... Well, I... I've heard it other places Have than just you? Iowa, but... I don't recall hearing it. I always uh, enjoy Clear Creek Amana, the school. Mm-hmm. And I uh, had a buddy in college that went there, and I always called it just to piss him off. Oh, Crick. yeah, you went to Clear Creek Amana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would get under the skin, right? <laughs> oh, just a little bit. Uh, we're waiting on uh, Governor Kim Reynolds. She will, uh, I believe, be addressing the media here momentarily, as she normally does. The live 11. stream is up right now, the video, as they always have here. I get the live feed of it, and they have the camera transfixed on the door, so you can actually see her walk in. Oh, now, really? We take the audio feed from WHO and... WHO TV, TV, right. And with that, we just get right when she's going up to the podium, because mm-hmm. they don't want to have that. So I'll keep you abreast of the situation and let you know when the governor is walking into the room... For today's press conference. Well, we'll hear from her coming up uh, whenever she gets here. So let's get back to the story that we began talking uh, with uh, about this morning, Trent. And that was the fact that yesterday we were uh, wondering out loud what uh, what's going on with Major League Baseball. We'd heard from, by the way, the NHL, I think, is going to play. Oh, yeah. That blows me away. Well, why would they be any different than the I NBA? Yes. I guess. Well, we're going to have to save this one as uh, WHO TV is cutting into the live programming, which means that the governor is walking to the podium. Here is the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. So today we have 467 new positive cases for a total of 6,843 positive cases in Iowa. 93% of today's positive cases are from the 22 counties where restrictions remain in place. One thousand, We have 1,047 new negative cases for a total of 34,494 negative cases. Yesterday we ran a total of 1,514 tests and we have tested 41,337 Iowans uh, for a uh, per capita rate of one in every six Iowans. And the State Hygienic Lab has the capacity of 4,188 tests. 
2,428 Iowans have recovered after having COVID-19 for a recovery rate of 35%. And today, I regret and I'm very sorry to report that we have had 12 more Iowans that have passed away as a result of the virus. We know that COVID-19 poses the most risk of severe illness for older and elderly adults and those with pre-existing health conditions. And the vast majority of deaths in Iowa continue to be among this very vulnerable population. Iowa's ability to expand testing is a critical component of our response to COVID-19. Testing ensures that we understand the levels of virus activity across the state and it allows us to provide, uh, it provides us a roadmap to identify and isolate those testing positive, conduct case investigations and tracing so that we can better contain the virus and develop strategies to manage it for the long term. Because of expanded testing and Iowa's effort, Iowans' effort to slow the spread of COVID-19, on May 1st, we will begin to loosen some of our mitigation efforts. A week ago, I announced the launch of Test Iowa, and that's a statewide initiative to dramatically increase our testing capacity for COVID-19. Any Iowan can go to testiowa.com and complete a brief assessment to see if they qualify for testing. Testing for now is prioritized for essential workers and people who currently have symptoms of COVID-19 or have been in contact with someone who has the virus or have recently been in an area where it's more widespread. But anyone can take the assessment at any time. In fact, it's really important that you do. The assessment also provides valuable information about what's happening in different areas of our state. By completing the assessment, you can help us better understand the virus activity in your community, identify and contain a potential outbreak early, and expand business openings in safe and responsible ways. And I'm so proud to say that Iowans have responded to our call of action. In fact, since launching Test Iowa just last week, we have had 442,000 people who have visited the site. We have had 229,000 Iowans who have completed the assessment. The top five counties with the highest number of completed assessments are Polk, Lynn, Blackhawk, Johnson, and Dallas. Of those who completed the assessment, 65% are female, 35% are male, 6% were age 15 to 24, 34% are age 25 to 44, 39% of those completing are the age are the age of 45 to 64 and 19% are age 65 to 84 and nearly 1% were over the age of 85 and that's more than 1,800 people. Nearly 2,300 Iowans have scheduled an appointment after qualifying for testing, and even with a soft launch at the first test site in downtown Des Moines, we have tested 874 Iowans since Saturday. At this time, the Des Moines site will continue to be open Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Today, the second Test Iowa site opens in uh, Waterloo at Crossroads Mall, and you must have, again, completed the assessment, qualified for testing, and scheduled an appointment to be tested. Remember that when you're going to the Test Iowa site after doing the above, uh, the Q bring your QR code that you received via email to your appointment, uh, because that's how we match your test samples and results to you. And next week, uh, we'll be opening two more Test Iowa sites in Woodbury and Scott counties. 
Test Iowa is um, part of our solution. To, well, it's our solution for large-scale testing for Iowans, but we are also expanding testing um, capabilities for essential workers. Strike teams are now conducting surveillance testing using both diagnostic and serology tests for employees who work in long-term care facilities and in areas that widespread um, with widespread virus activity. Again, by proactively testing, it's another measure that we can take to identify, isolate positive cases early and protect our most vulnerable long-term care residents. Last week, we had 315 long-term care employees in Tama County who were tested. And today, we have a long-term care strike team in Muscatine County that will be testing 120 employees from six long-term care facilities in the area. Strike teams will also use Test Iowa sites to conduct surveillance testing of long-term care workers in surrounding counties, allowing us to efficiently assess and test more of the essential workers uh, in a timely manner. Additionally, we are providing testing supplies to a number of long-term care facilities across the state so that they can test their staff and residents when a positive case is identified in the facility. Our ability to significantly expand testing, case investigation, and tracing puts Iowa at an advantage. It's these tools that will allow us, like I've said, to track the virus activity across the state, not only from a macro level, a state level, but all the way down to a county, community, and even a zip code. As I mentioned yesterday, with increased testing, we're also expanding our case investigation teams. Today, I've asked General Corral to provide an update on how the Iowa National Guard is engaged in this effort. General? Thank you, Governor. Good morning, everyone. As of today, the Iowa National Guard has 880 soldiers and airmen on duty supporting a variety of missions across the state of Iowa. These missions include PPE distribution. We have delivered this from day one from the crisis starting. These critical supplies have gone to every county in the state multiple times. We're providing administrative and logistical support to the Test Iowa sites in Des Moines and starting today in Waterloo with additional site locations coming soon as the governor just mentioned. We're transporting test kits and samples from multiple testing sites to the state hygienic lab. We continue to support the regional medical coordination centers across the previously mentioned six locations within the state of Iowa. Today, two new missions have become operational this week. We're providing soldiers and airmen to support the Iowa Department of Public Health with call centers for COVID-19 mapping across the state. Currently, we have 150 soldiers and airmen assigned to support this mission at call centers located at our National Guard facilities in Sioux City, Cedar Rapids, and one on Camp Dodge, with 50 of our men and women at each of these sites, coordinated with the Iowa Department of Public Health. The Iowa National Guard members supporting these missions have been thoroughly trained by public health professionals to gather and properly handle personal information required to determine potential COVID-19 exposure. The Iowa Department of Public Health is the lead agency in this effort, and all information provided is for the sole use by public health professionals. The Iowa National Guard will not retain or use this information in any way. These soldiers and airmen are assisting the Iowa Department of Public Health in efforts to contact Iowans who have tested positive for the virus in order to help identify other persons and places that may have been exposed. 
This will enable public health professionals to help prevent the further spread of this virus. The second new mission is providing manpower and distribution support to our regional food banks across the state of Iowa to help ensure all Iowans have access to food. We're providing up to 25 Iowa National Guard members to help support six regional food bank networks across the state. Our personnel will help unload trucks, sort food into carts, and assist with boxing, sorting, and distribution of food at these various locations. We are Iowans helping Iowans. We're neighbors helping neighbors. We are your Iowa National Guard. We're honored to support the people of Iowa during this challenging time. Thank you. Thank you, General, and we're so grateful to the Iowa National Guard and your soldiers and airmen for providing the resources that we need during this critical time, and we're very, very appreciative of Iowans helping Iowans. So in closing today, I again want to say thank you to the nurses and other medical staff working at the Test Iowa sites, the nurses from the Department of Human Services, the Department of Inspection and Infields, appeals who are part of our strike team and the Iowa National Guard servicemen and women who are supporting them and helping expand our case investigation capacity. You're providing an important service as we work together to get Iowa on a healthy path forward. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. And uh, good luck to the Test Iowa team in Waterloo today. And with that, we will open it up for questions. Governor, there was a University of yep. Iowa report released yesterday that says extending existing mitigation efforts for another two weeks could prevent a second wave of infections. Today we've got the highest number of single-day deaths reported at 12. Why not keep those in place for just two more weeks if it can prevent the spread of... So that's a snapshot in time and first of all I appreciate all the work that went into the model and just like the model and the recommendations that they put together and the IHME model that Washington put together, um, there's a wide range of outcomes and recommendations and so we are able with the additional testing capacity with the mitigation efforts that we put in place and the way that Iowans responded. We were able to flatten the curve. We were able to mitigate um, the impact on our health care resources as well as not overwhelming our health care facilities. And so at this time, which, you know, it, on a daily basis, we're learning more and it's rapidly changing as we're gathering information. We're really able to look at things on a case-by-case, real-time basis. And so I think it makes sense um, to start to loosen up in areas that have seen little to no uh, virus activity and to do it in a responsible manner. So it's not sustainable for us to continue to lock the state down. We need to start to open it up in a responsible manner in areas that we feel are we've seen a stabilization and a downward turn and some of the other um, things that we're looking at to start to open them up. We'll monitor it, which we can, and see how the state responds to lifting some of the mitigation efforts and start to move forward. So, you know, we're continuing, I believe, to do it in a responsible way. I think you heard me say that 93% of the positive cases are contained with in the 22 counties, so we're not seeing that start to move out. Yesterday, it was 96% of the positive cases were in the 22 counties. That's why I didn't open it up statewide, that we decided to do it, you know, on a county-by-county county basis, and we're going to continue to reevaluate every single day and make informed decisions to protect the health of Iowans, but also the livelihood of Iowans as well. You know, when we look at 
at our unemployment claims. We look at, um, you know, the increased food insecurity that we're talking about. When we look at the increased mental health concerns that we're having and just uh, from substance abuse to domestic abuse, there are a lot of criteria that goes into the decisions that are being made. And so we're going to continue to evaluate that and move forward. But do you think two weeks is an unreasonable amount of time to keep things closed down a little longer? So, so I said we'd look again in May 15th. I, I believe we were ready. I wouldn't have moved forward if I didn't think we were ready. In fact, let me give you an example. So we just lifted and brought back online with specific requirements elective procedures. I was on a conversation uh, with the president of the University of Iowa, Shiresh, and Brooks Jackson, Jackson, making the case to us through all of this why they felt that they were at a place with responsible measures put in place to bring back elective procedures. And so that also came out of the University of Iowa and was a recommendation based on the numbers, based on what they were seeing with vents and ICU beds and their ability to manage the COVID-19. They made the case to the team that it, they recommended bringing those back online. And with the recommendations that we put in place, looking at the RMCC regions, demonstrating what we've been doing to Iowans on a daily basis, we did have the capacity to very carefully start to move in to opening elective procedures. So that is how we're going to have to manage COVID-19 as we move forward. I didn't just rip the mandate off or flip the light switch. We're doing it in a reasonable, phased-in approach. We'll continue to look at the data, and we'll continue to work with Iowans and I believe in Iowans, and I know they will do the responsible thing. So if they're sick, they're going to stay home. If you're a vulnerable Iowan and you have underlying conditions, nothing has changed. You should continue to stay at home as much as possible. You know, take all precautions when you leave the house, social distance, wear a face covering, and really be aware of what your surroundings are. So I think we've moved forward in a reasonable manner to start to open Iowa up, which is something that we need to do. And do you plan to attend in-person church services or farmer's markets this weekend? You know, I don't know, but isn't it a wonderful thing? Isn't this great? Iowans are going to decide. Churches are going to decide. It's not a mandate. It's an option. So we have some that are going to continue to stay closed, and that's wonderful because they've provided opportunities to their members for online services. We have maybe some services in, in smaller communities that it's a smaller congregation. They're going to social distance. They're going to make accommodation so that their congregation feels safe about coming. But that's, an, that's a decision that Iowans will make and religious services will, will make um, across the state. I'll probably continue to still go online. Well, in fact, I think my church is continuing to stay online. That's a decision that they made. That's worked out really well for us, and I've been so, so, so appreciative of that. So that's probably what we'll continue to do. I, you know, I love what the Des Moines, the downtown farmers market is doing. They're doing it virtually for the first several weeks. I think that's great. Uh, some of the other farmer markets, farmers markets are like for Sioux City. They're reducing, adding additional uh, sanitation, wash stands. They're limiting the 
number uh, of, of vendors. And so we can do this. We just have to do it together. We have to be responsible in how we move forward. And if Iowans continue to do that with the guidance that the Department of Public Health has put in place, I think together we're going to continue to move forward and get things eventually back to normal. Governor or Sarah, which parts of the U of Iowa report did you disagree with? Thank you, Chris, for the question. I wouldn't say, you know, a model is a model. It's a forecast. It's um, an estimate of what we might see. And I think that one of the things to understand about that is we do, you know, as the governor said, we appreciate the work that the university has done in providing that information to us. As the governor has started to open things up in a few counties, you'll notice that social distancing and a, and a lot of the guidance that we've already provided, they're part of that reopening. And, you know, so Iowans who are most vulnerable, uh, they need to continue to stay home. That's consistent with the guidance that we've provided. And as we do look at reopening, the guidance from the Department of Public Health maintains all of those recommendations related to social distancing. And you'll see that in the guidance that's been posted, not only by our agency, but, it, but by other agencies as well, including DIA, for example, as it relates to restaurant reopening. So. <sighs> Yeah, thank you, Governor. Um, since Iowa still hasn't hit the apex of its positive COVID-19 cases, and, and I'm interested in an update from Sarah where the projections for a peak currently stand, when is the soonest that the legislature should consider returning to Des Moines since Polk County continues to be a leading hotspot? Yeah. And should there be limited access to the Capitol building when the 2020 session resumes the Legislative leaders today said they would look to the governor and health officials for guidance. So what's your guidance? Well, so I think, and we talked to the leaders as well, so I think, you know, that as we're seeing, um, Polk is one of the 22 counties, and so we're looking at the data on a daily-by-daily -daily basis, on a weekly basis. So this is through May 15th. So I think, you know, by May 15th, we'll have additional information. We'll kind of see where we're at with some of the expanded testing that we've been doing, and then we'll continue to reach out to them and, and make those decisions going forward but I think right now what they're saying is they you know since they are still um, they the additional restrictions still apply to Polk County that we'll continue to wait and see uh, what that looks like by May 15th I don't know if you want to talk oh yes governor thank you so I'm, I'm writing more on the meatpacking industry and uh, I, I see that the, that the president has issued uh, his mandate and I'm wondering if you are in the loop on what this means and how it will work actually on the ground in the meatpacking plant. Obviously they're closed largely because people are sick and, and you obviously can't make sick workers go back to work. Is it that we're just going to test all the workers and if they test negative then they may be compelled to work or lose their jobs. I'm just curious if you know how that's going to work on the ground. So, Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thanks, David. I, pre I appreciate the question. I'm actually going to be on uh, a call with the vice president right after the press conference today to walk through some of the specifics. We've tried to be a partner throughout this entire uh, COVID um, uh, pandemic working with our processing plants because it is critical infrastructure and they are essential workers and we need to make sure that we can keep them up and running to keep the nation's flu 
food food supply uh, flowing. But I think you know it's there's a lot of um, things that go into that. It's keeping the facilities open, but we also have new guidance now from CDC and OSHA for the processing plants that will be extremely helpful. It's making sure that we're providing adequate PPE and testing is a big component of that. So we have been very aggressive working with our processing facilities, doing a lot of outreach, walking uh, through what the guidelines from public health has been from CDC, and now with uh, the new OSHA guidance as well, to make sure that they're, and they are, working very hard to do everything that they can to protect the workforce and then uh, and provide the adequate PPE. And then we are not only doing surveillance testing with diagnostic testing, but we're also using serology testing, and we'll give you an update tomorrow on that. Uh, we're really leading the country in providing both so we can get some sense of the outbreak due, the case investigation and the contact tracing so that we can understand the scope and we can understand that if it's uh, asymptomatic and they test positive, the number of days that they need to stay home, if it's positive and they're not experiencing any symptoms and they've gone the seven days, three days without a fever and not taking any medicine, then we can get them back in the plant uh, sooner too. So it gives, it helps us make sure that, and, and give some confidence to the workforce as well. So it helps not only keep the processing plants going, but help helps us identify the scope and really make sure that we're providing the workers that they need so that they feel comfortable working in a safe environment. Carolyn, go ahead. Good morning, Governor. Um, I two-part question. Um, first, uh, you said just moments ago that Iowa is starting to flatten its curve, and I'm seeking some clarity on that statement considering Sarah said on Friday that our peak is still a few weeks out. Uh, and secondly, um, you've touted the RMCC regions as key parts in your framework to d make decisions about um, state policy regarding COVID-19. Um, so I'm curious uh, why the region approach wasn't taken with the reopening of the state and if you could offer some yep. insight about how that uh, regional approach yep. is working going forward. Yep, thank you. Those are good questions. And I'll try to clarify that just a little bit. So when we first started experiencing COVID-19, which I think the first three cases were on March 8th, it seems like years ago, but it's not actually been that long. Uh, as we start to understand the scope and to see what we were dealing with, uh, we were, went from uh, community spread to substantial spread. Do I have those right? Are those the two? And as we went into, as we moved into substantial spread across the state of Iowa based on the numbers that we were seeing, we started taking action and putting mitigation efforts in place in a very targeted approach. And the mitigation efforts were put in place so that we would slow the spread, protect our most vulnerable Iowans start to manage our health care resources to make sure that we had the PPE that we needed to really begin to flatten the curve. When I talk about flattening the curve, we put the mitigation efforts in place to do that so that we wouldn't overwhelm our hospital systems. At that point, they were talking from modeling back then about, you know, significant number of deaths, significant number of hospitalization, uh, the numbers of potential vent and ICU beds were off the charts. And so by putting the RMCCs 
piece together and looking at it from a regional approach, we were able to get hospitals and clinics to all work together within the region to better understand the number of ICU beds and inpatient beds that we had available, the number of vents that we had available so that we could start to project um, as we saw our numbers increase the availability for all of the healthcare resources. And as we've shown Iowans for the last several weeks with the RMCC data, and you can go online every day and look at that, you'll see that they've been able to manage the resources. The number of hospitalizations have not been anywhere near to what the early models projected. And it, just like I said with the University of Iowa, they were able to make the case that they did have the capacity, even in the event we potentially saw an increase in numbers, to start to release some of those beds and start to open up elective surgeries. So those efforts were tied mostly to resources and making sure that we didn't overwhelm our hospital system. Now since then we have been able to bring on additional testing to collect additional data to use the assessment that Iowans are taking to really drill down and really manage and contain virus activity across the state. And so this allows us to more surgically go in and see where we're seeing hot spots, where we're seeing increased numbers, where we're not seeing stabilization, and where we're not seeing a downward trend. And so I shouldn't punish half of the state when we've got a significant spike in eight areas. And we're going to, you know, we'll know more by next week as they walk through their 14-day cycle of testing, finding out who's positive, then they recover and are able to go back into the workforce. So, you know, the data is changing rapidly. We have better access. It's in real time. And that really allows us to to make um, decisions based on a county by county basis and not a regional basis. All right, that was uh, Governor Kim Reynolds. As we uh, come back, uh, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and get into sports. But before we do that, to KXNO and iHeart want to help you with your bills. Text the keyword cash to 200 200 right now. It's your chance to win $1,000 cash to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Uh, Pete Mundo from Heartland College Sports on the Big 12. Uh, John Bowen Camp from the Maven on the Hawks in the Big 10. Miller and Condon till noon. Des Moines Sports Station 1460 KXNO 106.0. Ken Miller, Trent Condon. Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. Talk some Big 12 and some Big 10 in this uh, segment as we take you up just before noon. Pete Mundo momentarily, John Bowenkamp from the Maven uh, before we skedaddle on out of here. Pete Mundo joins the program. Pete, Trenton, Ken in Des Moines, thanks for coming on. Heartland College Sports uh, is where you can read Pete and his staff. How are you, Pete Mundo? We are doing okay, guys. Trying to get by, stay safe, and uh, wish and hope we're one day closer to sports coming back. What do you think about that? It seems like the, there's um, Iowa State, when you're going around the Big 12 footprint, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State have come out and said that they anticipate that they will have students on campus uh, in the fall. 
So that's at least three of them. I'm not sure if I've seen any of the Texas schools yet, but it seems as though the state of Texas is opening up. Are you more encouraged maybe today than you were a week ago, Pete, uh, pursuant to whether we will indeed have college football this fall? I become more encouraged by the week, um, and maybe that's my own optimism. But, I mean, I, I really believe that we are – think about where we are today versus a month ago, just based on what we know about what's going on in the news cycle and – uh, you know, who this virus does target, who is most susceptible to, uh, God forbid, find themselves in a rough health situation due to this virus. We are learning more every day. And I am confident that as Americans, we'll learn more in a month. We'll have even think about two months from now. Two months ago, guys, we were sitting in late February going down the home stretch of the college basketball regular season. I, you know, this was on the radar somewhat. But, I mean, two months ago feels like a lifetime ago. Where are we going to be two months from now? Anybody that says that they have the answer is a liar. None of us do. But I know the trend has been positive, and uh, the information is going to continue to to churn and burn, and we're going to know so much more in a few weeks. So I'm confident that we're going to be here in the fall. Is it going to be a full schedule? I don't know. Is the stands going to have 100,000 people in it? I don't know. But I'm confident that we're going to have a college football season. Bob Bullsby, uh, the other day in an article on The Athletic, I, I thought brought up a really good point. It's something that has been talked about a bunch, and that is a second spike. He says he feels like there's a really good chance of getting started on time. But to paraphrase, he says a second a second bump that comes up here, maybe a split season makes a whole lot of sense. Now, you get into a whole different set of parameters to do that. For the Big 12, that works okay for Texas and Oklahoma and the like. But for Kansas, Kansas State, Iowa State, West Virginia, a season in the winter or a split season in the winter becomes a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I, I saw Bob Bowlesby say that, Trent. I don't like it at all. I, you know, I think, uh, first off, basically having these guys prepare for a season – playing, uh, let's say, through the middle of October and then take it off until the spring. I mean, you're asking guys to then shut down their bodies, retrain their bodies. By the way, if you're going to be in the NFL draft as a stud prospect, why are you going to play in the spring semester? I mean, there's no benefit to doing that. Um, If we found ourselves in a situation where we were expecting a spike of coronavirus in the late fall, early winter, I think what you do is you prepare for a season where you have fans in the stands for the first half of the year. And then you start easing off of the, you know, fans in the stands as the year goes on and we get closer to the winter. And I think that's how you should play it if that's the road that they think they have to go down. Uh, you know, depending on what our testing capacity is at that point, depending on, uh, you know, what the vaccine situation, we don't expect it to be here then. But who knows? American innovation has always surprised us. So I would rather play a season where half the year is maybe with, um, you know, the stands either half full or all the way full, and then you kind of taper that back as you get closer into the winter time. I, I just don't see any feasibility in playing half a year in the fall and then half a year in the spring. Uh, we are speaking with uh, Pete Mundo, HeartlandCollegeSports.com, uh, on the Big 12, and let's get to the Big 12. I, I loved your piece on the draft, looking back at uh, your awards, as you call them, the Big 12 awards. Now, you and I are going to disagree on Jalen Hurts. Uh, opinions, what makes the world go round on sports talk. Um, 
I think he's going to make it. I'm not saying he's going to supplant Carson Wentz anytime soon, but I'm anxious to see his fit. And I'm a Broncos fan, so I'm not an Eagles fan. But where you and I are completely on the same page, Pete, James Lynch to the Vikings in the fourth round. Look, every time I watched uh, Baylor play, it was it just jumped off the, the screen to me. This guy is a disruptor time and time again. I love that pick, Pete. Love it. He seems to fit perfectly into the NFC North. It's just like uh, James Lynch, NFC North, they just feel like they go together really well. Uh, in the fourth round, you get the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. In a year, Big 12 has uh, had a pretty good bunch of defensive players. This is not, uh, as the cliche goes, your father's or your older brother's Big 12 is probably the best way to put it. This league started playing much better defense the last couple of years, but especially this past season. And James Lynch was obviously the best player on that side of the ball in the conference. So, uh, love the pick. You know, I, I don't. I just with Jalen Hurts. You know, a bust. You've got to be first or second round. If Jalen Hurts was picked in the third or fourth round, he's probably not a bust. I just can't see a guy as a second round pick at the most important position on the field when he's got no accuracy beyond ten yards and. You know, if Lincoln Riley had to switch the OU offense uh, to cater to Jalen Hurts' inability to get the ball down the field, I don't know how it's going to work at the next level, and and that's my biggest concern around Jalen Hurts. TCU with a bunch of guys, and the question was posed at Harlan College Sports, where were the wins? I think a really relevant one when you look at Patterson, what they've been able to do, but we haven't seen that breakthrough that uh, we saw at least early on in the Big 12 tenure for TCU. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's fair, and nobody in Fort Worth, Trent, would ever do this, uh, criticize Gary Patterson. Right. I mean, yeah. Gary Patterson's the reason this team is in the Big 12 mm-hmm. uh, yep. right now. He has a job for life. But I do think it's fair to say, hey, listen, you know, you, you've been under 500 now the past two seasons when you put them together, and you know what? You led the conference in NFL draft <laughs> this past week. I, that's just, I know that you're kind of working in and trying to figure out your quarterback situation, but I, that's a letdown. That's a disappointment. That's underachieving no matter which way you slice it. I know you had injuries as well, like Lucas Niang. You went third round of the Chiefs, and he could be one of the steals of the NFL draft. But mm-hmm. uh, Gary Patterson, you love him. He's one of the best coaches in college football. There's no question in my mind about that. But that does not mean you're immune from criticism. And when you are churning out, um, NFL draft picks, and you're finishing under 500. You are allowed to be criticized for that, even if you're Gary Patterson. Uh, Ray Lima, your undrafted player to watch. Uh, the Dolphins pick up Ray Lima. I I don't get why he wasn't picked. Uh, watching Iowa State as closely uh, closely as we do, he he looks like an NFL talent to me. I'm not saying he should have been a you know a first or second day pick, but he sure. I was surprised he didn't get called at some point on day three. I think he's got a big chance. I agree. Um, I think it's more about the devaluation of that position, the big eat-em-up defensive tackle in a league that continues to spread it out, which I don't think is fair. I mean, anybody that can pick up a and take up a double team uh, on the interior is valuable to For me. Sure. Uh, I, I am not an NFL guy. From the, you know, I'm much more of a college uh, guy than I'm an NFL guy. So I can't speak to what they maybe didn't like about Ray Lima, but just watching him in college, you talk about somebody that in, what, almost 200 picks, nobody gave him a shot, or over 200 picks, nobody gave him a shot. It seems preposterous to me, um, and, you know, I hate to put it this way, but if he's at OU or Texas, does he get drafted? Mm. 
probably. Um, but I think that'll change. You know, if we're sitting here in five years and Matt Campbell's still doing what Matt Campbell does at Iowa State, guys like Ray Lima won't be getting overlooked. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Brock Purdy speculation as to, you know, his spot maybe in the first round next year. Charlie Kohler as well has been in some uh, mocks, uh, some first-round mocks as well. Long way to go before we get to that point. Pete, as always, thank you for coming on. We'll run you down in the weeks ahead. Thank you, Pete Mundo. Anytime, guys. Thanks so much. Yeah, good to talk to you. Pete Mundo, Heartland College Sports. As he joins us, we go around the Big 12. Well, let's do likewise with the Big 10. Uh, focusing in on the Hawks here, John Bowenkamp from the Mavens. He joins the program. Hello, John Bowenkamp. How are you? I'm doing good. How you doing? Doing well. Before we get into uh, college sports, you're, you're a Dodger yeah. fan. Have you yep. seen Bob Nightingale's uh, plan as far as the 10-team divisions, three 10-team divisions for your Dodgers? The Dodgers, Angels, Giants, A's, Padres, Snakes, Rockies, Rangers, the Astros, and Seattle. Look, no one's going to catch the Dodgers wherever they were placed, but they're home free. Well, yeah, I mean, you're looking at, what are they saying, 100 games? Yep. You're thinking maybe 90 wins probably out of that group. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> so, so seriously, seriously, when I saw it, was, oh, good, that, that means the Astros are going to so, so, so a lot of the, you know, a lot of chances to throw at them. So, um, no, I found that interesting. I think it's an interesting uh, uh, way to do this. I, I think they really want to get going. I think I don't think they want this to last much longer. I think they want to play, and if that means playing in the stadiums where there aren't any fans, they're going to do it. So I, I found it interesting. It's a way to do it. You're not going to be able to play, you know. You're not going to be able to play what you were going to be able to do anyway, you know. But at this point, you know, what if you, you know, if you played with the schedule that you would have played anyway, you know, that there's going to be some imbalance there. I, I, I just think I think this is the right way to do it, and I, I think I think MLB's finally figured out some way to do this where it's. It's somewhat equitable. So coming up here in about 15 minutes, you're going to have a chance to talk with Chris Doyle, Iowa football strength and conditioning coach. Mm-hmm. What led to this? Was it one of you beat guys putting a bug in the ear of somebody over there? Kind of, uh, It felt like at least an odd time, of course, spring football would be wrapping up. Maybe that's normally when you have a chance. But what led to this? I don't know. You know, I, I, I know some other schools around the Big Ten have done it. I know Illinois has done it. And, and, I, and I think it kind of gives you good insight on on what these guys are doing now. I mean, obviously they can't have the, the, the hands-on, you know, training in the, in the weight room, you know, that, that you would usually have. So, you know, I, I think it's a good way to answer that question. Well, you know, how are these guys working out? You know, what are you, what are you, what sort of plans are you giving them? I mean, everybody's got different workout situations. You know, maybe some kid has a weight room in his home. Maybe somebody doesn't, you know, um, you know, are they getting into personal gym, you know, private gym somewhere somebody letting them in for an hour workout by themselves it's a way i think to kind of for us to grasp on what they're able to do with these guys not on campus because i mean they they really do have a lot of i don't want to say control but i mean they know what's going on with these guys they know how much they're sleeping they know how much they're eating they know all that and then so this is i think this is an insight into what these guys are doing how they're keeping track of them how are they making sure that that when the time comes when these guys can get back on campus, get working out, are they going to be ready to go? How long is it going to take them? You know, I mean, one of the questions I think will come up today is how long do you really think it will take to get guys mm-hmm. available, you know, to get, to get them in condition 
from practice. Is it going to be you know you know four weeks, two weeks, whatever? You know who knows what it'll be. So I think that's probably what we're going to, the answers we're kind of we're going to get today. Uh, we're speaking with John Bowenkamp from the uh, Maven part of the Sports Illustrated umbrella. Well, AJ Epinesa went what about the middle, maybe toward the back end, middle, about the middle of the of the second round, which surprised a lot of people, myself included. John, was this all incumbent upon? You know, his 40, he didn't run well, apparently, in Indianapolis. Now, he didn't have the benefit uh, of having a pro day. That got canceled in the whole COVID uh, situation. Uh, I think the Bills get a steal with Epinesa at pick 54 overall. Was this all about his uh, his time that he ran in Indy? I think so. I think that had a lot to do with it. I mean, I don't think it was everything. I think I think even before the draft, there were some questions. You know, they, they look at technical things and, you know, he's not doing this, he's not doing that. You, you saw that in a lot of the, the analysis beforehand. But, you know, I think if, if he would have had a, you know, if he would have had a pro day in Iowa City, could he have improved on that? Absolutely. You know, and, and, but I mean, I think what happened was, I mean, there, there's a certain, there's physics to a draft, you know, when you think about it. Once that first round is done, then really all bets are off. You know, I mean, when you get into the second round, you get into the third round, that sort of thing anything's possible you know teams really start you know looking for guys that you know they they think can be you know they they look at they look at guys differently i think once you get past the first round and i think that's why he kind of slid down a little bit because i think everybody thought the patriots would get him earlier you know i mean that was kind of one of the mock drafts a lot of the mock drafts had been going to new england they passed him by and once that happened then you started to see you know, everybody started going for, you know, skill players, wide receivers, cornerbacks, that sort of thing. And I think then that's kind of kind of how he fell down. But, no, you're right. I think Buffalo's got a great pick with him. I, I think he's, you know, with what he can do, I think he's very talented. I think that was a, it was, it was a good place for him to land. Though uh, prospects not allowed on campus, Iowa football recruiting continues to do incredibly well. Big offensive lineman from Illinois that had offers all across the country. Hawks are loading up here. What year twenty two are getting ready for Ference and still beating out some of those big schools for for high school prospects. Yeah, I, I you know, I mean it, he has they have done a really good job here, especially in the last week. And you look at some of the guys they've gotten, and I mean there's there's some really really talented players, but I think there's some diamonds in the rough there. You know, the the kid they got yesterday out of out of Olathe, Kansas, uh, Arlen Bruce. If you look at his numbers and you look at his, his, his you know, his lineage, his, his father played in the CFL, you know, his dad's related to Isaac Bruce. Um, there's a lot of talent there, I think. And so it, it, what's really interesting is they've got 13 guys now. and Usually their, their class is around, you know, 22, 23. I mean, they're more than halfway there, and it's not even, you know, and it's the end of April. So, you know, I think they like to get things done early. I think they're getting the guys they want. And you can tell by their reaction. You can tell by Tyler Barnes's reaction on on Twitter. He's he's they're really happy with what they've been able to get here in the last week, especially. John Bowenkamp from the Maven is uh, with Miller and Condon on fourteen sixty KX and O and one hundred six point three FM. John, we're starting to see some of the uh, guys that put their name in as far as NBA feedback get the uh, get the feedback that they sought. When do you think? Uh, do you have any idea when we'll hear from? You know, from Garza either way, because apparently, you know, some of these guys are starting to get that feedback uh, sent back to them. I think we'll probably hear something here in the next couple of weeks. I think I don't think he drags it out 
until June 3rd, which is the, the last day to withdraw, I think probably here in the next couple of weeks. And we may learn a little, a little bit more about that tomorrow. We get Fran McCaffrey in the, in the Zoom call tomorrow, which I, nice. I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to that. So, um, you know, I, I, I think we'll, we'll probably learn more about that maybe tomorrow, hopefully. Um, but I do think it, I don't think he, he stretches it out to June 3rd. I think, I think he makes that decision. Once he gets the feedback, I think he makes a decision one way or the other. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'll be coming back. And if he is, I think, I think, you know, this is going to be a really good team. And I think he'll take that feedback and, and, and really take his game another step above what it was this year. Go get in the queue to talk to Chris Doyle. Thank you, John Bowenkamp. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, you do the same. Good to talk to John Bowenkamp from the Maven, uh, joining us here on Miller and Condon. So they get Doyle today. They Mm -hmm. get, uh, McCaffrey tomorrow. Good. Love it. Content. Absolutely. Hopefully some sound bites, some information for us to talk about and speculate about. about Look at Iowa. Yes. That's good. How different it was compared to 25 years ago. It's not even night and day. Good for them. Uh, Feed the Beast. The Beast is the consuming public, and they do it via the media. So uh, I think that's a good thing. I really should should do more of it. I wish all the schools did more of it. No, no doubt. Right? Reaching out. Love to have it. Uh, Did we talk about A.J. Green? I don't think we did. Did No, we we have not. Uh, Because that came out over the weekend that Mm -hmm. he, too, is putting his name in. Look, he's six foot four. He's a six four point guard. Right. And he can shoot. Some does some things. I, yeah, because and he's got some stuff going on between the years. He's a I, good player. I told you off the air. I'm not saying he's going to the NBA, by the way. Right. Yesterday, uh, before we went on, we were just talking about it, you and I, just kind of going back and forth. And, and I had somebody, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody's opinion that I respect as Garza was starting to garner National Player of the Year. And he said, well, it's not even close. A.J. Green's a better NBA prospect than Luka Garza. And I was taken back for a second, and then I thought about it. As he said, he's a 6'4 point guard. Mm-hmm. He can shoot it. Mm-hmm. He can run an offense, and he's the kind of guy that NBA people like. He's got bounce to him. He's got athleticism. He's a good defender. He's all of those things. I don't think he's staying in the draft. No, I don't either. But you get a free run. Again, even if this, and it's looking like we're not going to have certainly a normal off season. but all right, you're going through, and you're a scout, and you're going through. All right, we had somebody that did cover the Midwest and saw some NBC mm-hmm. games. This is the report. He gets feedback. Well, he, he goes was the from best there. player in the conference. Right. People know who he is. NBA people know who the best player is in the MIAC, in the SWAC, right. and certainly in the Missouri Valley Conference. They know about A.J. Green. But just to get that feedback and to build on it, you and I's got a chance to be really good next they year. They do. Iowa's got a chance to be really good next they year. They do. But it depends on both Luka Garza and A.J. Green. We assume they're coming back, but it's an assumption. Mm-hmm. That's where we are. Prome's starting to uh, fill some jerseys, which is good. they got a four-star, and they're in line to potentially for another one. We'll mm-hmm. see. Transfer from Wake Forest. We'll do more on that uh, on Friday with our recruiting guy at Iowa State, uh, Alex Halstead. He does a lot for us, Alex Halstead does. We're grateful to him uh, for doing that. All right, Murph and Andy coming up today at 2. The Fanatics at 4 in the morning rush. We'll start things off tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Thanks for being here. We're Miller and Condon. 10 to noon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM.